and welcome to the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts, Paul Samuda and Amanda Woodward. With 45 years of combined experience in the world of property buying, selling, investing and developing, they are here to share with you their knowledge in the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and Crew property market. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Essential Property Podcast with your host Amanda Woodward and today I have David Hilton from the Home Building and Renovation Show with us. Hi David. Hi Amanda. So we're going to be spending the next 20-30 minutes or so with David talking all things energy, heating, energy efficiencies and sharing with our listeners hopefully some tips and some educational information in and around how they can make their properties as efficient as possible and perhaps understand a little bit more about the government legislation that's coming in and how we can prepare for that. So the Home Building and Renovation Show is kicking off in Birmingham in March. In the show notes, I'm going to be putting all the different dates. They've got dates all over the country, which I'll come back on towards the end of the podcast. But I'm going to ask David to introduce himself, tell him a little bit about us and his experience in the sector. So over to you, David. I kind of grew up with renewables. My family had a business in Cape Town. You'll note the accent is slightly non-English. And we grew up, luckily, in the nice warm climate there. But my family had the business manufacturing solar panels and heat pumps for swimming pools at that stage. So I spent my youth either on roofs or next to swimming pools, just fitting bits of kit that nobody really understood. So when I moved back over here in 1997, they said, what do you do? And I told them I do solar panels and heat pumps. And they said, haven't you noticed the sun doesn't shine? They'll never, ever take off over here. So I went off and did my what was then Corgi and became gas safe certification in natural gas and LPG. And then I went on to do a master's degree in architecture to bring the technology and the design of buildings together. Now I write for Home Building and Renovating magazine to try and take this wealth of information and impart it to the reader. Fantastic. It's the Home Building and Renovation magazine, their shows going sort of on tour, so to speak. Is that something you've been doing for a while with them? Yes, for a number of years, I do all their shows. Great. I can see they've got 15 different speakers covering a whole range of different subjects from sort of self-building to planning, finance around property. And you're there as, I think they've got you down as the eco-expert. That's the title they've given you there, David. Um, Well, yeah, (laughs) that, that is a very broad spectrum title, but it tends to be the homeowners that are coming in and looking for the truth behind the myths that they read about elsewhere. And also, the if you look at the media, there's a lot of good news as well as bad news and horror stories about almost anything, let alone renewables. So we cut through that and say, this is how you do it right. These are the pointers you've got to look for. And hopefully, we'll bring some of those out in the next few minutes for your listeners. Good. Well, I was about to say, we don't want to ruin the surprise of the show and hopefully that some of our listeners will be attending. But if you could just share with us perhaps some of those myths, I think that could be a good start and maybe burst some of those with your sort of expert knowledge, I guess, for, you know, whether you're a homeowner or whether you are developing, you know, or converting a small house for a tenant or converting a small building to a couple of flats. What are some of the big myths that we should be aware of? 
Well, if we start looking at renewables, let's just leave aside solar panels for a bit and we'll jump straight in on what we'll refer to as the heat pump ship. A heat pump works in exactly the same way that your fridge does. It moves heat from one place to another. Whereas a boiler, whether that be a gas boiler or an LPG boiler or an oil boiler, what it does is it burns something and that combustion gives you a lot of very high grade heat in a short period of time. So it suits the type of homeowner that wants to come home after work and spin the dial and heat the house up in a short period of time. Whereas a heat pump doesn't do that. So you need to kind of leave it on a bit like you leave your fridge on. You don't have an app for your fridge. Well, you might now, but (laughs) you don't normally have one and you don't turn it off and on. It self-manages and heat pumps kind of do the same thing. But if your home is not very well insulated, then yes, you'll be hemorrhaging heat during the day. So what you really want to be doing is looking at the efficiency of the home as such. And the two criteria there is basically insulation and air tightness. So put in as much insulation as you feasibly can. Many homes lend themselves to it and many homes don't. And then try and find the air gaps where you've got drafting because a highly insulated wind tunnel is just not going to be an efficient place. (laughs) So as far as that goes, if we can take care of air tightness and insulation, we can get to a controllable environment and we can then start working out how much heat we have to put in. The higher the temperature the heat pump needs to make, the less efficient it's going to be. So that would be basics of it. And we'll dig down into some of the technical details in a bit as well. So when we talk about insulation within a house, so a lot of the properties in the Midlands and towards the north of England, where a lot of our listeners own property, they're sort of older terrace properties, perhaps sort of 1900 builds as an example. You'll be lucky if you've got a little bit of sort of wool insulation in the loft, not really much insulation anywhere else in the property. So what would be a good starting point in terms of improving the insulation element of a building like that? Well, the low-hanging fruit is your loft. And you mentioned a terrace. Now, a terrace is an interesting one because we almost have to assume that the home next door should be warmer than the outside. So you've got an advantage that you've got a shared party wall as such that will theoretically be warmer and therefore less heat loss. So that is an advantage of a terrace. But as you mentioned, try and get what you can into the loft. And then if you've got suspended floors as well, maybe, and it's a bit more disruptive, one would have to lift those and get some insulation underneath as well as some sort of membrane to stop the air being sucked out of the house when you've got cross ventilation. So with that being the top and tail, the next thing becomes the windows. So if you've got sash windows and things like that might be fairly leaky, then you've got to look at those. If they are nice and draft proof already, then have a look at the performance of the glazing. Maybe that needs improvement. Anything that's got sort of a mist in it that can't be removed that's between the glazing, you know that your glazing panels have blown already. So that needs improvement. And one of the things about windows is to really take it as good as you feasibly can. But even the very, very best triple glazed windows are only going to be about a third as good as an average wall when it comes to insulation. So Really, your low-hanging fruit is your roof, then your walls, then your windows and doors, and then mix into that your floor if you can do anything about it. Clearly, a solid concrete floor is not something that's easily remediated. We had a similar scenario where we got asked to insulate a concrete floor, 
And the conversation went something along the lines of it's going to take more energy to dig up the concrete floor and lay the insulation than it would in savings of energy through adding the insulation. I'm sure there's a calculation somewhere, but how does that work? How do you work out well, that's what yeah, to do? I think that's one of the strange things when it comes to calculations. There's a lot of embodied energy that goes into the floor. So how much energy was used in bringing that floor to the home? But there's also something to say that money burns a hole in your pocket. So if you had, for some reason, had a, a, a lump of money that you could use to fix that floor, then at least your outgoings every month would be less so that you could have a sustainable and more sort of focused financial forecast of how much this house is going to cost to run. So making those improvements, maybe they don't exactly add up immediately, but in the long term, they probably do. So if something was done badly and you're going to be fixing a number of problems at the same time, then I would look at it. But with a concrete floor, it's not always easy to lift it because the concrete floor might already be underneath your partition walls inside your house. So you're then removing walls and removing all sorts of things as well. And then you really need to not just cut out middle sections of the floor, because then you're going to damage the damp proof course that you've got, the plastic membranes and stuff, and you could be opening up a whole lot of other issues as well. So I would tread very carefully before lifting a concrete floor. We lifted one in a garage, but that had no intermediate walls. So lifting it when it's just known as an inset floor is not too difficult, but make sure it does not affect any of your partition walls. Got it. And just going back to what you were saying about the low-hanging fruit and the loft. So we're doing a development at the moment, and we're working with building control, and we're working with our sort of EPC slash SAP assessor, who is putting together some modelling to come up with what we need to do. And it seems that sort of building control sometimes have one opinion. The EPC man has another opinion. (laughs) Us as its investors have a third opinion. But when it does come to loft spaces, is, you know, the yellow wall at 300 millimetres going to do anything? Do we really need to look at more sophisticated insulation that's kind of packed into the roof? What's your opinion on that? Is that something that everyone should be doing? How should we be assessing that for whether it be a terrace house or just your regular three-bed semi? Okay. Well, the 300 mil of wool will do something, definitely. But what it does depends on a number of other surrounding factors. So heat moves into and through your home in three different ways. It's either going to be radiant heat, conductive heat, or convective heat. And radiant heat is your sunshine. So, you know, very often you could be standing with a jacket on inside your conservatory. And the moment that the sun peeks out from behind a cloud, you feel it immediately. It's through the glass, it's through your coat, and you immediately get that warmth. But you don't take your coat off because the air around you is still cold. So only after a number of hours that the sun's been shining, does it then heat up the objects in the building and then the objects heat up. And when you heat up objects, if you touch that object, it could be really hot. And that is conductive heat, where it's the heat that moves from object to object. And then convection is where the air now has the heat in it. Now, the convection can't get out through the glass, whereas the radiant heat can. So different materials insulate against different types of heat. Just the same as if you had a cast iron pan and you were cooking on it over a fire, eventually the handle would be too hot to handle. 
So you'd put a piece of wood around it. Now, as far as that goes, when it comes to mitigating these types of heat, your wool might be very good at keeping the convection in in winter. But if you've got a lightweight roof, you might be letting radiant heat in summer. So you'll have a lovely, comfortable home in winter, but maybe you'll overheat it slightly in summer. So one needs to really look at that in quite a detailed way. And one of the new regulations that came in last year was building regulation part O. It's one of the only ones that's easy to remember because it's O for overheating, whereas all the other ones seem to just use random letters. And there's a number of ways of actually looking at overheating, whereas SAP looks at it as an average. And you might have built a kitchen extension with a lot of glazing on it, but your home might be 200 square meters and you've built a 20 square meter extension. So your extension is only 10% of the whole thing or less than 10% if the whole thing's going to be more than now 220. So what SAP does is it looks at it as an average and it says, well, that 20 square meters is putting a certain amount of energy into the home, but the rest of the home's cold. So on average, it's fine. SAP looks at it in averages. And there's a thing called TM59, Thermal Modeling 59, which is a fairly expensive modeling program that looks at that area in isolation to see if it's actually going to overheat just that bit. So sometimes this overheating element needs to be taken into account and sometimes extra things like cross ventilation need to be initiated at high level so that you're creating the cool air to be able to get into the property as well. So it's not only keeping warm in winter, it's staying cool in summer that makes a big difference as well. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so after we've looked at our lofts, if we start to look at the walls of a property, so a lot of the buildings are just a double skin brick build. Not a lot of them have sort of cavity wall insulation, which I know I think is a bit of a topic of debate. Should we just be, you know, putting a hundred mil Kingspan or Celotex on the wall to insulate, or is that a very simple approach? How can we look at insulating the walls in in, in a, an efficient way? Well, you've mentioned a specific brand there, and you also mentioned a little bit earlier, 1900s property. Now, in the late 1920s, cement was invented. So anything prior to that, and possibly even into the 1930s, people were still using lime as a mortar. And lime is what's referred to as vapor open. It breathes, draws vapor in, and then it pushes vapor back out again. So if you start using vapor-closed insulations, such as the brands that you mentioned, and there's lots of them, which is the yellow PIRs with foil on them, which don't allow vapor to go through them, then the chances are that could create what's called interstitial condensation, where you get moisture and mold buildup in the wall over a number of years. So there's a number of things that need to be brought into account. The other thing to think of is if you've got a property and you think that's fine, I've got one from the 1930s, so and it's definitely cement. Well, cement carbonizes at a millimeter a year. So after a, if it's 90 mil thick brickwork, then after 90 years, which is kind of where we are now, then your wall will have become vapor open. And that's why we had buildings that had concrete cancer because the concrete would carbonize and you then suddenly moisture would meet would reach the reinforcing bars and rust them and they would start splitting so personally on 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 buildings beyond a certain age i just treat them all as vapor open so on the walls that becomes important in the roof it doesn't matter because you can still treat it so long as your timbers are breathable on one side or the other with membranes if you're changing your roof that's all manageable 
But on your walls, you really want to allow the vapor to move through them. So I keep them vapor open on all of them. And that's really interesting because, and I'll just use a specific development we're working on at the moment. I would say this property is late 1800s. It's not a listed building, but it's a building of special interest. And the brief from building control is to completely pack that house with the exact insulation that you've probably said we shouldn't be using with the foil in you know on all the walls and in the roof. I'd be hesitant um, be hesitant to do that yeah. unless you're introducing some sort of ventilation regime within the depth of the wall. What there. is the alternative David? What is the, the, the more vapor breathable type insulation you're referring to? What a lot of the guys do on internally one can use stud work and mineral walls that they will be slightly thicker because of the thermal resistance of the mineral wool is such that you'd use probably 120 to 130 to about 130 mil of each of the mineral wools rather than maybe 90 to 100 mil of a dense block so you'd use a bit more density but with a dense block you usually need to leave a gap in the cavity again whereas you can do a full cavity fill with mineral wool especially if you were rebuilding the walls so you could put membranes in we did a garage conversion ourselves and we've put a membrane against the wall stud work mineral wool and mineral wool is just the generic name a lot of guys refer to the different brands of it but mineral wool not being the fiberglass version but you get two different types as well. You get rolls of mineral wool and you also get what's called a bat. And the bat looks more like a, a small mattress. That's usually the one that goes into the wall and the roll would you'd use in your loft. Got it. Okay, so let's just touch on another area that landlords are quite keen on, which is just their general boiler. So let's assume that there isn't going to be a heat pump put into a property and they're using a traditional sort of gas central heating system. Perhaps the boiler's knackered or it's new, or it just needs, you know, an updated version. Any advice in and around how we can assess what would be the right type of system for that? Well, first off, have a look at your radiators and make sure that they are piped in a modern way. If you've got what's called a single pipe system, which is more where the radiators are plumbed in series, then that needs to be ripped out and changed. And you really want to be looking at things like parallel systems, which is a parallel plumbing system. You want to really be looking at well at good control so that you've got controls in each room rather than just on the landing so that you can control the rooms precisely. They are wireless systems, but if you're pulling your house apart, I always go for wired systems if you can. Wireless is a compromise, but sometimes if the home is already decorated, it's the only option. But having control in every single room just makes life so much easier. Got it. And what's your thoughts on infrared heating as an alternative for traditional radiators? Something Um, we've been looking at, we're quite keen to get your thoughts infrared heating is in the radiant spectrum when i spoke about the different types of heat it's in the radiant spectrum i've not yet experienced a whole house solution with it we've got two of the radiant systems ourselves and i use one on the ceiling of the bathroom as a complementary system so the bathroom very often becomes full of extra things like showers and baths and loos and cabinets and things so because we've put underfloor heating in, there's not actually enough floor area to get the heat into the room. 
and the towel rails, guess what? They're covered in towels. So we've put an infrared radiant panel on the ceiling as a white panel as a complementary system so that when you get out of the shower or in the bath and you're just a bit more vulnerable, then you've got that lovely radiant feeling on, on it. But it, as I say, it's a complementary system. It works in tandem, can be fully controlled as well. We've also got one out by the barbecue area, just in case one wants to extend the visitation a little bit. And you don't want to light a big fire. So we've got one there as well, just for that extra amount, that those times when the evening descends a little too soon and you just need a bit of heat. Even in the summer, sometimes that exists. But the whole ethos behind radiant heating is really examining the total cost of ownership of the system to say it's the capital cost plus the running cost and the lifetime maintenance that one has to look at to say, actually, what is the total cost of ownership going to be on that? And does that suit the way you want you want to run things? There are a lot of people who say, I would rather the total cost of ownership is higher, but I have a higher capital cost and a lower running cost so that my my future is more certain from that point that they'd say, I'd rather invest more now and have less payments later. So it depends on what your priority is. And I'd really urge the listeners to think about what the priority is on this. How long are you planning to be in the property? And you know, how far are you from getting to a point where perhaps maybe retirement is looming and you're thinking, actually, I need, I need my costs to be fixed. So I'd rather pay for stuff now while I can afford it. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. And whilst we are in the sort of cost of living crisis, as as it's been termed in the UK at the moment, and both homeowners and landlords are looking at the cost of all the energy. We've got some landlords who operate a bills included model, and they're running shared accommodation and HMOs, where the cost of energy is obviously very important. And then we've also got properties where the tenants are paying the bills, just in like a traditional rental. But equally, we want to make sure that those houses are as efficient as possible to make sure that their bills aren't too high. So they want to continue to rent the property. So the cost at the moment is really quite important. And is there, I mean, we spoke about low-hanging fruit. Are some of the things we've discussed already the quickest way to generate some savings? Where can we generate savings, do we think? Well, within that, it's quite a large scope in what you've described. But if you have, let's start with the property where the bills are included, having lived in those types of accommodations in the past, I find that people become wasteful. There's no barometer as to how much you use. So I think HMOs are probably going to get to a point where a certain amount is included and you know, up to a certain point and everything's metered so that one can actually work it out. But if you're working out how to change things yourself, if you're in a block of flats, it becomes difficult because you're subject then to the managed organizations within the block of flats and you can't just go and add things to your flat without the whole management saying, yeah, we're going to chuck in a, an extra amount of money that you have to pay every month and then we're going to redo the roof and then we're going to redo the walls and put different systems in. But from my point of view, even if you in the flats yourself, if you can put in extra things like wireless motorized valves on your radiators and things like that, that might cost 60 pounds a radiator and maybe 150 quid for the controller, then you can then set your temperatures very precisely. Whereas a lot of the guys that have flats, especially ones with central heating, 
they look and they go, the thermostat's by the front door yeah. and the bedroom's too hot and the lounge is too cold. And when I turn the thermostatic radiator valve, it doesn't tell me how warm the room is. And it just turns the boiler off and on from the, when I open the front door, the boiler goes on. And when I close the front door, it warms up in the hallway because the hallway's got a big radiator in that just boils the hallway very quickly. And it's just impossible to manage. So putting motorized valves in every single room actually gives you full control and you can set it and say, I want that room at 18 degrees. But along with this, I'll throw a little curveball in here as well. Good ventilation actually lowers the requirement for temperature in the room. So as humidity drops, your requirement for temperature drops as well. And as an example, ours was a 1980s property. I do talk about it at the Home Building and Renovating Show quite a bit as a case study. It was a 1980s property and we lived in it for nine years before changing, adding on bits, and we put full mechanical ventilation in. And before putting the ventilation in, we used to set the temperatures in the room somewhere between 21 to 25, because the humidity would lift up so much. Now that the humidity is lower, we set them somewhere between 15 and 18 in the rooms, just because the humidity is lower. And the analogy on that is that if you had a room that was 21 degrees and you had a swimming pool that was 21 degrees, if you stood that air that is 21 degrees and you then jumped in the pool, you would feel cold because the density of the water pulls the heat from you. You are 37 degrees, so it pulls the heat from you. So the more dense the air is around you, the more you will lose heat. So what we're finding is people heat up their homes more and more. They take off their jumper. They're now in a T-shirt in a dense environment, they're feeling cold. And that is exactly what happens. So we need to get rid of that humidity and just manage the heat. It sounds like a lot of sort of education, really. I mean, it makes common sense and it sounds like tenants and homeowners and investors probably just need to understand it a little bit more, which I guess is what the show is all about. I've got down here that you've got a couple of talks. One is about upgrading your heating systems and how to make the best choices. Correct. Uh, Which I think will be fantastic. And then I've also got here a talk on how to pick the right mix for your self-build project, which is, I guess, the part when you start to get really excited because you've got all the new tech that's come into the space that we can start to include within a new build, perhaps. Well, it is. It's a kid at Christmas, isn't it? You've got a blank (laughs) canvas. You're just looking and thinking, right, that's it. I mean, sometimes we have guys that sit down because we have the ask the expert area. The visitors can come and book a slot with us and they'll sit down and some of them will just say, we're building a new build. And I say, fantastic. Where is it? No, I haven't got the plot yet. And I'm like, okay, you don't know where this is. What do you know? I'm having a heat pump and I'm having a granite worktop. And somehow we've got to reverse engineer a home out of this whole thing. And they start picking up ideas of what it is that they think they should be putting into the property. But we haven't really looked at how you want to live in that property, how you want to manage the property. Is it a permanent property? Is it a holiday home? Are you letting? Is it an Airbnb? What are you doing with this property? Because all these heating systems react and behave in a different way. And you've got to find the products and the controls that suit how you want to run your home ultimately. So it's not just a one size fits all, you know, it's just making good choices. New build is, is relatively easy because you've got the blank canvas, but it's also difficult because you've got the blank canvas. Also, I can imagine. Well, it sounds like anyone who's attending is going to be in for a treat with all the different knowledge that you're going to be sharing with them on the day. So just as a little bit of a recap 
for the show. So we've got Glasgow, Surrey, London, Harrogate, Somerset, and you've done Farnborough already. So yeah, we've got Glasgow in May. We've got Sandown Racecourse in June. Then we've got the Excel Centre in, I think that's in October, November as well, October. And then the we've got Harrogate and Somerset in November. Fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today to come on and share some tips of our listeners. I think they will be learning a lot just in this little small time we've had together. And we encourage everyone to head down to the show and see David there. David, thank you very much for your time. And enjoy Pleasure. The show. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if so, please hit subscribe and share with those who you think would enjoy it too. To get in touch with Paul and Amanda directly, please visit their website, www.essentialpropertyoptions.co.uk for more information. We look forward to sharing with you on the next episode.